0: Welcome to another installment of New Books in Military History. This is your host, Jay Lockenauer from Temple University. And I'm here today with Tarek Bakarwi, who is the author of Soldiers of Empire, Indian and British Armies in World War II, uh, which came out with Cambridge University Press last year. Uh, Welcome, Tarek.
1: Thank you, Jay. It's great to be here. And thanks very much for reading my book. It was a pleasure. Um, Tell
0: us a little bit about how how that book came to be, what got you interested in the topic?
1: Well, you, you know, to be honest with you, I was it. It, it dates to back to the early '90s. I was uh, given assignment to to uh, I was working as a research assistant um, and working on confl- uh, religious conflicts in the Sudan. And I, uh, you know, had a bent to go far back in history and found um, these uh, Sudanese slaves that had been captured by Muhammad Ali Pasha, the modernizing Ottoman viceroy of Egypt. And he'd, he'd brought in some French, uh, some veterans of the French, uh, the Napoleonic armies to train them up as um, uh, the only rifle armed troops uh, in his army. And this kind of combination of foreign or slave or colonized military manpower uh, and modern military discipline stuck, stuck with me. And I started looking around and sort of realizing that uh, uh, there were many uh, armed forces Uh, that did not fit the mold of national armed forces that I'd sort of grown up reading about the British Army, the German Army, and the American Army. Um, And that's really where this project originated. Why is it that people would fight for a foreign power? Um, And what does that tell us uh, about the nature of military service?
0: So I, f- I found the book really challenging just to my, to my worldview in a way. And I, and I want to talk to you a little bit more about that because I'm, my work has largely been in that mold of armies somehow expressing naturally the attributes of their societies and learning about societies through studying armies. Um, explain to the listeners exactly how you challenge that mold.
1: Well, what I try and do in the book um, is take as ordinary an imperial multicultural army and ask of it the same questions that military sociology and military history have asked of uh, national armies. I think one of the, the things that is kind of gone on um, with military history and military sociology is that for a lot of understandable reasons, um, uh, not least that military sociology gets its start in World War II, they've taken, uh, taken um, shape within national settings and their objects of analysis are, nat- are national armies. So when they ask questions, why did this army fight? Why did it mutiny? Why did it behave this way on the the battlefield? Always in the background is the explanatory resource of national society. Um, And initially when military sociology was arguing that soldiers fight for their buddies, um, that organizational and psychological dynamics shape what soldiers do, this was not so important. But as people tried to grapple Uh, With the involvement of militaries uh, in atrocity, the involvement of militaries um, uh, in extracurricular battlefield violence, in race war, in treating Japanese soldiers different than they treated uh, German soldiers and so on – people started to turn to national society at, for explanatory resources for how it is that uh, soldiers fight. They fight out of ideology, they fight out of political uh, political commitment, uh, and they fight the way they do because of various kinds of racial categories they take from society to the battlefield. Um, you know, a good book in in, in this line is Craig Cameron's uh, American Samurai, which looked at uh, uh, American and Japanese soldiers and their views of each other on, on Guadalcanal. Um, But in a colonial army, in a multi-ethnic army, also fighting in World War II, also fighting German and Japanese soldiers and fighting them in much the same way, these explanatory uh, avenues to national society, like ideology and racism, simply aren't available. And they force you to think differently uh, about the sources of battlefield, um, battlefield behavior. It doesn't mean the Indian army is somehow disconnected from Indian society. It means that we need to look at combinations Uh, of military and social factors that explain the behavior of soldiers.
0: I was relieved uh, to read in a couple of later places in the book that at least you let us, those of us who study Western national armies, uh, off the hook to a certain extent by suggesting that in those contexts, it's still somewhat appropriate to talk about these national ideologies and and so forth. So I don't have to just tear up all the the reading that I've done.
1: Uh, Absolutely. I mean, I think this is one of the big um, misunderstandings as Uh, Of what post-colonial might mean in the social sciences. Um, I think one of the things that's gone on recently uh, uh, is that people have turned to non-Western histories um, to write sort of subaltern studies or social histories uh, of militaries that weren't Western. Um, and to recover the voices and experience of non-Western soldiers, that's actually not what I'm doing. Um, I take very seriously uh, what De- Depeche Chakrabarty has argued in Provincializing Europe, um, that Western social sciences is, is an extraordinarily rich a tradition It tells us a great deal um, about the things that we might want to know about. Its problem isn't that it's somehow wrong or needs to be replaced with Chinese social science or something of this kind. It needs to be supplemented with the experiences and histories of others and to revisit our general approaches to things which are, after all, based on the provincial experience of a few Western and European armies in, in military sociology and military history. So the point isn't that these things are wrong, it's that we might look at them differently uh, if we had a broader array of history and experience to draw on out of which to develop our general accounts. Uh, And that's sort of what I try to do in the book.
0: And you still rely on Durkheim fairly extensively, at least in the later sections. And I'm actually tempted to use – I'm certainly going to assign parts of this to my graduate students just to force them to grapple with this idea. Um, But also, I think even my undergraduates will benefit. I teach a class called War and Peace, which is essentially war in society. How does culture and politics and religion influence the way different societies have fought in time? And you're your uh, discussion of, of ritual and training I found really rich and I think um, would help students understand the degree to which even Western armies um, are heavily ritualized and, and the impact that that has.
1: yeah it's it's it was sort of interesting to me as I, as I developed this project I originally uh, began life as my as my PhD. Um, you know I thought for sure. There would be a range of studies that looked at the military through a ritual lens um and in fact this is simply not the case and and part of this is i think a kind of sort of um a, a western view that ritual is for non-western people ritual is an anthropological category that we use to study indigenous peoples um and not as it were to study up uh, to the west not something that we would use as a general category uh, of social science when looking at modern societies. But when I look at the military, all I see are a bunch of rituals chained together. Um, And and so uh, uh, that's sort of one aspect of why it is I turn to really some pretty basic, I mean, the anthropologists would see me as sort of out of date to be using Durkheim, uh, Victor Turner, and and people like this, but I I turn to really relatively straightforward anthropological accounts of ritual and sacrifice uh, to try and tell us something new, um, new about the military, and one of the things it draws attention to Uh, is the way in which uh, drill uh, is often seen as a sort of like special Western property, Um, uh, not something that, you know, uh, uh, drill is what Western armies do. um, And because Western armies do, it's not a a ritual. But if you look at drill as a ritual and you sort of uh, uh, understand uh, Western drill as one particular form, you see immediately that drilled armies Armies that practice uh, in the way that we come to um, uh, understand close order drill on the battlefield. Drill is something that was invented at many different times and places. It's not a specifically Western property, um, but it's a remarkable way of generating social solidarity and training troops to behave, to do, to take the correct actions on the battlefield. And uh, Chinese, Japanese, African military uh, armies. Uh, 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 came up with versions of drill. Although, of course, it's the Western form of drill that got globalized around the world um, uh, 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 with uh, uh, Western imperialism. And the sort of last thing I'd, I'd, I'd say about this Uh, is that drill is the key to understanding the army uh, as a form of social organization that is cosmopolitan in nature. Anybody can be made into a soldier, not just Westerners, not just Germans or Americans. People from anywhere can be recruited into an army and drilled and turned into a credible infantry soldier. The discipline of the military is a cosmopolitan form of discipline.
0: And and not exclusively modern. I mean, you, you know, a couple instances you rely on Roman m- models or examples.
1: Uh, exactly. I mean, I think uh, um, uh, while there are many uh, specifically modern features uh, of modern war, uh, technology, um, mass production, um, the sheer scale of the world wars, I, I'm not of the view that military discipline is itself something absolutely distinctive to modernity. And there's a kind of funny move that uh, Michel Foucault makes in Discipline and Punish, uh, which is he uses a military discipline as the model of modern discipline but he points out that this form of disciplining soldiers uh, is something that goes way back into the ancient world uh, and as we know um, it's the recovery of ancient uh, military manuals that reintroduces disciplined foot soldiers uh into Europe and in the in the in the early modern period or that 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 is part of uh, reintroducing uh, infantry soldiers in, uh, into Europe. So the forms of discipline themselves are very old um, and they're very broadly applicable. Uh, and this is why it is that this category of ritual uh, seems to me to be um, a more effective way of thinking about military discipline um, than the notion that it's either Western or specifically modern.
0: So are we back then simply to thinking about primary groups? In other words, the allegiance, the group solidarity that's a function of these of these drills, kind of independent of ideology?
1: Well, I, you know, along with many um, analysts of the military, it it seems to me very clear that that group solidarity is absolutely essential uh, uh, to fighting effectively in in regular militaries. Um, And so I would not in any way want to dismiss entirely the notion um, that soldiers form very tight bonds of comradeship in and through training, and that they draw on these bonds uh, uh, on the battlefield in a variety of ways. However, as Omar Bartov and others have pointed out, there's a kind of fatal ambiguity uh, to the primary group. I mean, if if soldiers uh, fight for their buddies, why are you fighting at all? I mean, take your buddy and get off the battlefield. Um, a, A primary group can be the basis for organizing a mutiny Uh, for various forms of of, of battlefield indiscipline, like hiding together or going on a patrol, hiding somewhere, and then coming back with a fake report. Um, uh, uh, Group solidarity or buddies uh, doesn't explain why it is that soldiers might fight particularly hard, why they might be willing to lose those buddies, uh, and why they might be willing to lose other buddies um, uh, in, in 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 collecting the blood debts of those who have already who are who have already died. So I think we need additional. Resources to, as it were, point the primary groups in the right direction, or explain why it is uh, that they fight to the point of of annihilation. Um, and this is where it is that many military historians and, and, to a lesser degree, military sociologists have turned to ideology, to ethnicity, to race, hate, to explain why it is that primary groups uh, direct their violence towards the enemy. Yeah, you make the
0: point, you you make this point. In a way slightly different, I think in the in the book, but you point out the irony that casualties can actually increase group solidarity. They don't necessarily erode yeah. the primary group in the way that people understand it somewhat uh, simply.
1: It's a a sort of stock feature of the cohesion or combat motivation group uh, debate that casualties are a problem for combat motivation. Um, And this, it seems to me, has always got this exactly the other way around. Uh, There's nothing quite as bloodthirsty as a unit, a well-trained unit that has suffered casualties. They are looking for payback. Um, and, and that dynamic of uh, inflicting blood debt on the enemy, the enemy inflicting blood debt on you, uh, is a kind of circuit of battlefield violence that once it gets going, uh, can generate resources on its own for the continuation of battle. You don't necessarily need, as it were, ideology or something you're fighting for uh, back home. The thing begins to take on uh, a, a life of its own. Um, and so I think seeing uh, casualties uh, not as a problem for cohesion, but constructing them as sacrifices in the way that anthropologists do. Uh, and a sacrifice, as an t- uh, anthropologist will tell you, is always about the building of social solidarity. A group is never more alive as a group than when it's lost a member uh, and it's mourning. So let's talk a little
0: bit about the, the specifics of the book, because the title seems to indicate that it's incredibly broad, the Indian and British armies of World War II. It's really uh, focused on Burma, though. And I found that fascinating, partly because I don't know much about the Burma campaign. So uh, tell us a little bit about how that either shapes your argument or about your contribution in that area.
1: Thank you. Uh, thank you, Jay. Um, so I titled it uh, broadly, uh, in part to appeal broadly, and to make sure that World War II got in the uh, got got in the title. Um, Burma, I think, is particularly interesting because it's kind of a, um, a a collection of all of these different people from different ethnicities, different empires, diff- different nations. Who are fighting this, uh, you know, very vicious uh, infantry war in really uh, very difficult, very difficult terrain. I mean, parts of Burma uh, have plains uh, and are flat, but a little, where a lot of the fighting occurred uh, is uh, is on jungle-covered ridges. And it offers an opportunity to see how people from very different social um, uh, and ethnic backgrounds came to be fighting one another in very similar ways. Um, or, or not. But the fact is that they, they, they did. And Indian uh, peasants end up fighting the Japanese in ways not dissimilar to American Marines on Guadalcanal. Yet, of course, those Indians hail from a very different background. So Burma enabled me um, uh, 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 to have a kind of sort of natural historical experiment uh, where you could see how it was uh, that people from different backgrounds came to fight in, in very similar ways. Um, it's very interesting. It's it's not uh, – it doesn't register very much uh, in the U.S. It's just China, China, Burma, India, and you think immediately – uh, Stillwell and, and the Nationalist Chinese. Um, but for, for Britain, the Burma campaign uh, is the main Pacific War campaign that they, they were involved in. Um, and most of the fighting in Burma and most of the troops in Burma uh, were British Imperial troops and Indian Indian Army in particular, with the British Army very much uh, uh, as a minority force.
0: And of course, it wasn't just uh, ethnically diverse on the Allied side. You point out that the Japanese uh, had not not only Koreans working or fighting for them, but also Indians in the Indian National Army.
1: That's right. Of course, like everywhere the Japanese went, there were lots of Koreans uh, uh, in the IJA. Um, but the Japanese also raised uh, uh, national independence forces uh, from the colonies that they liberated, um, and the largest and most successful of these uh, was indeed the Indian National Army, that was primarily uh, recruited out of uh, Indian prisoners uh, captured after the Malayan and uh, uh, the Malayan campaign and the fall of the fall of Singapore. Um, so it enabled you, as, as it were, to see the Japanese Indian Army and the British Indian Army facing off against one another. Um, uh, and again, this sort of comparative case dimension of the Burma campaign uh, comes to the fore.
0: And of course, the, the context of Indian nationalism and, and the independence movement is is critical for that story.
1: Uh, ab- absolutely. Sorry, my screen went out there. I mean, that is the, the, the counterpart to the National Society of, of National Armies. What, what, what the Indian Army had back home uh, was colonized Indian society. Um, and uh, Indian society, of course, was the site of the world's most advanced uh, anti-colonial movement of the time, the Indian National Congress. Um, and it was also the site of major famine. Uh, during the Second World War, uh, and a very complex uh, relationships between uh, the British and the different commu- and the communal organization of uh, of, it, of its Indian Empire. So this is not a national society, as it were, mobilized uh, and standing unified uh, behind an army. Um, in the way that we imagine a a, a national army. Um, And yet, despite all of this, and despite the recruitment uh, into the Indian army of uh, Indian officers, almost all of whom uh, were nationalists and wanted independence for India after the war, despite this, the Indian army, for the most part, uh, fights relatively well. It, it is an effective and very large, over two million men at one point, uh, fighting force for the British Empire, even at this late, even at this late 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 date in the history of formal empire.
0: And that just puts the finest point, I think, on your overall argument about the the kind of surprising willingness of these soldiers to fight. Is not only are they they're not fighting for their own country in some ways, they're fighting they're fighting for their oppressor, but they're also you mentioned the family, and they're also concerned about their families. They have not only personal reasons maybe to want to escape the violence but the, but to go home and and protect and provide for their families
1: yes it's a uh, um um uh, i I think one of the things that comes out in Soldiers of Empire uh, is to sort of try to break down this distinction between soldier and mercenary. Um, you know, one of the ways that we, we think about that distinction is that soldiers fight for their own people. Mercenaries are in the hire of a private company or a foreign power for pay. Um, but, you know, the Latin derivation of soldier is, 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 is one who fights for pay. Um, uh, and as one of my Indian officer's remarks, uh, I think he was in, uh, in, in the Western Desert Campaign, he said, I don't see anyone out here who's serving without pay. They all, they all look like mercenaries, if you're going to call us mercenaries. Um, so the Indian Army, like all armies, had a material base that allowed its soldiers to, uh, to do what they did. And what the British did was to protect the Indian Army recruit, recruiting grounds from the worst of the famine. Uh, And moreover, precisely because there was famine uh, uh, in India and the Indian army is recruited from uh, rural areas, um, for many Indian soldiers, it would have been more profitable to be at home growing grain uh, than it would have been uh, 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 to be off at war. Nonetheless, the the army was seen as a place where you would get three meals a day uh, and and a paycheck in a situation of uh, economic and food insecurity uh, in the Raj during
0: the war. So the other thing that you tackle early in the book, at least, is the the whole notion of the creation of the Indian army and, in some ways, of Indian society by the colonial power and for the benefit of the colonial power. And this is in your discussion of the whole martial races idea.
1: Yeah, I mean, this is where I take on the um, the uh, kind of headline. Organization of Military Sociology, which it asks, is it army or society, uh, which, um, uh, pre, you know, uh, uh, is most significant in creating soldiers and making them fight? And I, I would say here that, I, you know, my even though the debate is sort of set up that way, I think most military historians in military sociology, if you said is it an army or society that shapes a soldier, uh, they would say both. Yet they still want to think about these things in two different categories. Um, you know, over here are the social factors and over here are the things they pick up in the uh, in the army and instead what i i look at in the in the um in the book is the way in which the army took a set of cultural and ethnic ideas from civil society and using military discipline instilled it in the troops that they created. And it's in this way that the martial races come to have existence as a particular ethnic group. Um, the, you know, the, the kind of classic example here is the Sikhs, who are known as a warrior people in large measure because for so many years, for um, a century, they were recruited – in very large numbers, uh, as a percentage of population, uh, uh, by the Indian Army, and and are um, instilled in, with a warlike version of their own ethnic identity. Um, uh, you know, you know, Sikhs are uh, warlike because they uh, they're in the army, and these identities then begin to bleed out into civil society. They become a basis upon which uh, Indians uh, seek to negotiate. Uh, with the British, you know, we, um, uh, we we want a better part in the army or, or uh, we want to be able to uh, have this particular menu uh, of food or whatever it is, you um, know, in, 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 because this is what our religion demands. So... Uh, F- ethnicity becomes something that is produced in and through the Indian army rather than something that pre-exists the Indian army uh, in the way one would think about, oh, there were martial races out in society and we just went and recruited them. The martial races were a creation of the Indian army and through that went on to, to have ro- play roles uh, in Indian society. It was fascinating
0: to see uh, these groups – I mean, you mentioned in terms of the the issue, primary group, how that group solidarity could could bite the army in terms of it could be the basis for a mutiny. These martial races could then um, struggle against each other for promotions. I mean, literally for hardcore benefits, pay, promotion, conditions.
1: What the what the uh, Indian army did, um, you know, all of this is in a way the martial races is a reaction to the Indian mutiny, um, and the perception uh, of the Indian mutiny. Uh, was or one of the responses to the Indian Mutiny was that we have to find ways to make sure that the soldiers that we're employing to defend our N-E- empire don't get together and form an Indian nation, and so we we want to divide and rule the soldiers within the army. Um, And this is where it is that martial races really becomes um, normative in the Indian army, a a way of dividing and ruling the army so that it doesn't join against the colonizers. Um, But once you organize the army in these sort of stovepiped arrangements, and it's probably worth explaining to uh, listeners that this was an army that divided and ruled itself down to the battalion level, Um, each company. Uh, in an Indian Army battalion would be from a different uh, martial martial race, uh, a Patan company, a Dogra company, a Sikh company. Um, and each company would grow its own junior officers. Um, and then above those junior officers are a kind of intermediary class of warrant officer called the Vi- Viceroy commissioned officers. And these were really the key people uh, in, in, in the battalion, and they were also grew out of each class. And it's these NCO and VCO slots, um, and the pay and power and perks that went with them, uh, that the different uh, martial races in a battalion would fight over. And this becomes spe- uh, particularly problematic the minute you go into a high-intensity war situation. The Indian Army is set up to fight frontier war, imperial war. And if you lose you know, 15 batons one day, there are likely to be 15 batons coming up through your replacement system to slot into that company. But if you're fighting the Japanese or the Germans and you lose half the baton company one afternoon... and th- also all the NCOs and maybe also the British officers who speak um, uh, uh, who speak the appropriate language, the replacement system simply couldn't keep up with this. So they started having to add, different martial races into companies composed of other martial races. Um, And this is the point at which uh, if you're a kind of British Orientalist, you think, well, the the natives aren't going to get along. We can't put Hindu and Muslim troops together in the same company or two different kinds of Hindu troops or Sikhs and Muslims together. It'll be chaos. Um, But it turned out that officers by and large made this work. And they made it work through pretty sensible kinds of simple things like making sure that the the larger group wasn't able to victimize the soldiers of the of the minority group or promoting um, NCOs from the minority group, so that they had representation within within the company. Um, So this sort of experience of mixing together different martial races in the same companies under pressure of war convinced a lot of uh, people involved in this, both Indian and British, that this stuff about the martial races didn't really make any sense. It was actually, uh, as it were, as some of them say, retarding progress, um, re- you know, making Indians more tribal rather than less tribal by enforcing this kind of discipline, uh, uh, as as quite a few British officers were commenting by the end of the war. Well,
0: this is a good point just to emphasize the, um, the strength of the book in terms of the tactical descriptions, too, because the point you just made about casualties, I mean, it mattered which company was at the side of the box that the Japanese attacked. I mean, they could get wiped out quite easily, yeah. um, which made World War II a different kind of a conflict for an army that's constructed in this way, so that's that's not really a question, but it's just an observation. One of the things that that I also uh, was going through my mind as a as a German historian um, was what we what we think we know about the Habsburg army, right? The the and I, I know I'm going to kind of embarrass myself and oversimplify, it, but the the notion that nationalism disintegrates the Austro-Hungarian army and therefore the Aust- the, the Habsburg Empire, the example that you read, that you show us maybe makes us rethink that that it, that didn't necessarily need to happen, that there were things happening within the army itself that would have generated these kinds of solidarities um, independent of ethnic conflicts.
1: Mm. You know, it's it's interesting you mentioned the Habsburgs because on, on several of occasions when I presented work from this project, people have mentioned the Habsburg, Habsburg army. Um, and I've, I've Dealt, dealt into it uh, a, a very little bit but I'm not very knowledgeable. Um, but the general kind of point um, that I think comes out of this is that the minute you start looking around uh, for um, multi-ethnic armies uh, fighting in high intensity situations you fight you find quite a lot of them. And one of those armies of course is the British Army um, which throughout uh, uh, the modern era has made very large use uh, of Irish troops from both sides of the border, uh, both Protestant and, uh, uh, and Catholic um, uh, both sides of the northern Irish border. Um, so uh, even in the midst of World War uh, I and World War II when Irish um, uh, Irish uh, uh, anti-British feeling is running very high and there uh, you know wars for Irish independence, you still have very large numbers of Irish soldiers. Uh, uh, in the British army. Same thing as I discuss in the book with uh, a, a Welsh battalion that I look at um, in some detail uh, at the end at the end of the volume. And for all of these kinds of groups, their political stakes of the war are not the same as it is uh, for the primary national p- power, yet the army still s- seems to manage. So we have to look for other sources of why it is that soldiers keep fighting. And, and one of the things I develop in the book is this notion of the structure of battle, Um, The ways in which particular kinds of battlefields uh, 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 and campaigns have features which, as it were, kind of lock soldiers uh, into a cycle of combat Um, in, in Burma and everywhere the Japanese were encountered, the problem of surrender. Uh, the fact that surrender was shut down uh, as an exit valve, you couldn't just sort of throw your hands up, people uh, uh, fought to the very end, and even the wounded uh, would try to take one more with them, in part because they, they, they thought on both sides uh, that if they surrendered, they wouldn't be allowed to, they'd be killed anyway, so you might as well go out fighting. Uh, another feature of the structure of battle in, in Burma that is very significant um, is jungle terrain. Uh, encounters often took place in conditions of surprise and, and very close range. And so the fight takes on a kill or be killed nature. Um, in the book, I also lay out a, a kind of basic um, combat uh, uh, the attack on a perimeter uh, and the way in which in a perimeter, um, everyone is going to stand or fall together. Uh, if if the enemy gets in inside that perimeter, you're all going to end up um, uh, uh, in a bad way. Uh, and so there's a kind of pressure on everybody to fight together. Uh, In order to survive. Um, This this perimeter is also what it is uh, that people like Victor Davis Anson argue uh, works in a phalanx. As long as everyone stays together, you're more likely to come out of the battle alive than not. So paradoxically, the army and the battlefield have conspired to create a situation that the way to survive is to fight hard. And, and, and that is to sort of put survival as the motivation for combat. Now, that's a pretty interesting trick that the military plays on people, but it's a very different kind of argument than the turn back to this idea that people are fighting out of ideological or political commitment. And they're somehow able to sort of, you know, push down the fear in their bodies because they're committed to this uh, ideal goal. I just don't think people in large measure um, you know, in large numbers and mass armies uh, uh, can function in that kind of sort of mind over body way.
0: So you've been working on this project for a long time. You said it, it began in the 1990s. What are you going to work on next? Or what are you working on now? Uh,
1: well, what I'm working on now is um, uh, I, I think I, I, sh- I should sort of say I am I, um, which may be of some interest to your uh, li- listeners that, you know, I made this horrible mistake and I went and did my PhD at a political science department uh, because I'd, I'd had a master's degree in, in IR, which in Britain is um, in international relations. It's very historical and multidisciplinary um, and international relations is located in political science in the U S. So I sort of rocked up at a political science department and my, you know, fellow uh, students had projects that sounded like physics textbooks You know, so um, uh, uh, anyways, I I say that by way of saying that my work is uh, becoming uh, increasingly archival and historical, and I really don't uh, fit within um, uh, a political science, international relations um, discipline anymore. So uh, that's by long-winded way of saying that my my next project is on the first year of the Korean War. Um, And the question that I'm interested in is how it is that uh, American soldiers and officers Uh, made sense of uh, suffering defeats and military setbacks um, at the hands of people that they regarded as racially inferior. Um, You'll see, you'll know, Jay, that some of this is coming out of the final chapters of of Soldiers of Empire, where I look at some of the processes of how it is that the histories of battles are written. Um, And I observe uh, that uh, many battle histories are written by veterans. This is a a very uh, kind of the long-running uh, tradition uh, uh, of uh, battle, kind of calling for its own history, and the people who participating in participated in it go home, and they don't only they don't they don't only write memoirs; they also write researched histories. Um, and and we sometimes dismiss this as drums and trumpets uh, uh, military history. It's the kind of military history that military historians and universities are not supposed to do. Um, uh, uh, because it's the, you know, story of combats and heroes and, and uh, you know, why this platoon was over there and not over here, um, and not the story of social forces and institutions that we're supposed to be telling in proper academic history. Um, but I want to revisit what kind of history is battle history uh, as a form of public history, uh, you know, which is read far more widely, um, uh, uh, than academic military histories, but also as a form of insider discourse where soldiers come home from battle. They're often extremely aggrieved, especially uh, if you were in Korea. Uh, and then they research and write texts which become very significant battle histories. Uh, an example from Korea uh, is T.R. uh This Kind of War. Um, which had a long run as a bantam war book, uh, a, a, as a, um, a, a, a text on uh, officers' reading lists and in staff college, and it was just mentioned again recently uh, by Mattis uh, uh, that as something we should read if we if we're contemplating a war in Korea. Um, so this is a very significant text, um, but it's not a normal kind of history. So what kind of history uh, is this? And and that's the sort of question that I that I want to ask. Um, and the, the the book that I've uh, found most kind of inspiring um, to think about this question is is deepest the calling for history um, which is an account of a very prominent uh, Indian historian who operated entirely outside the Academy um, in in the last uh, you know beginning the 1890s up through uh, British uh, uh, uh Indian independence. Um, and he writes history, it's it's Sarkar is his name, and it's sort of not important who he is. Um, but what kind of history is history conducted outside of the academy? How does that become socially meaningful? What is the research process? And how, what will this tell us about what happens in battles, uh, uh, with battles in their journey from an event uh, to being written up in a history like this? Sorry for the long-winded answer there.
0: No, that's very, very helpful. I mean, one of the things that I try to do at the end of an interview is to ask for a, a recommendation for a book uh, to read either to because I want to interview the author or just for my edification. So now maybe we, we have that recommendation already. Well, uh, thanks for your time. This has been a fascinating uh, interview. I think we'll uh, sign off here. And um, thanks again. I highly recommend this book.
1: Thank you very much, Jay. It's been a pleasure talking to you. This is Jay Lachenauer. Hoping you
0: enjoyed listening to Tarak Barkawi, discuss his new book Soldiers of Empire, the Indian and British Armies in World War II that was released by Cambridge University Press in 2017. Come back again.